So Acts chapter 20, uh, I'm going to rewind a few verses back to uh, 7 to kind of recap an event that I merely glossed over, which is you never want to do uh, a resurrection or resuscitation as a gloss in uh, the text. So we're going to kind of recap that um, this morning and then move forward. But let me ask you this. So a lot of you guys that stayed home last week, so shame, hiss, boo, rubbish, okay? Uh, you stayed home last week, but um, I, I, got on, uh, I got on Twitter this week, and, and uh, a guy I follow, I don't, I've never met him in person, but anyway, he said as uh, he was gathered with his church family last week, one of the families in their church, um, their house burnt down. They lost everything. So they decided to go to church. Their house burned down, lost the pets, lost all the belongings, but they had their lives, right? And so I'm going um, to give you this hypothetical. Suppose you, decide, you decided to come last week against your better judgment because it was cold, right? You said, okay, I'll come. I'll come anyway. But then while you were here, your house burnt down, right? You lost everything. In your mind, I want you to be real honest with you. You don't have to be honest with me, but you should be honest with yourself. In your mind, what would you have said? Something like, if I would have stayed home, right? This wouldn't have happened. You would have been like, what? Maybe, you know, something happened right before you walked out and you were like, that was God trying to tell me to stay here, right? But for those of you that came and your house didn't burn down, that's clearly the blessing that you received. But um, you guys are either really shamed about this or not very um, laughy today. But um, here's the thing. I do want you to think about this idea that uh, how is it that you were like moving through the world and when something happens that either is regrettable or unexpected, something like that, I started the message last week with asking like, how are things going in your life? And if something is collapsing or a lot of things are collapsing, what is it that you're doing to run that through the filter of, of your faith? And so I have a one, a one question poll this morning and is this, are you, are you in God's will? Now I, I'm going to give you a, a chance to think through that before you speak Okay? I want you to think about that, and then I want you to seal in your final answer to the person next to you. And this is not a maybe. It's a yes or no. Are you in God's will? Okay? So I want you to think about that for just a second. And then once you are confident about your answer, go ahead and tell the person next to you so that they can hold you accountable at the end of this message. Okay? So go ahead. Tell them, are, are you in God's will? It's a yes or a no. A yes or a no. Some of you are laughing at the other person's answer. They're like, yes, and they're like, nah, nah, I know you. <laughs> I see your life. Okay, no, um, okay, so, so I, I did the, the, broke all the cardinal rules. I gave you something to read, and I gave you an opportunity to talk, and now here you are somewhere in the lilies. Okay, come back to me, okay? The question of are you in God's will is one that causes probably the most uh, consternation, confusion, problems for us. If, if you do spend any time thinking about this, it's generally when there's some like crisis decision for you or something like what I just mentioned happened, right? You're, you're just kind of going along, you're doing things, and then something goes poorly. And then you go, um, maybe I should have prayed about that. Or maybe I should have checked with somebody other than myself on whether or not this was the right thing to do. And then that's when we kind of get thinking about the idea of God's will and his plan. And these are kind of all, all tied together um, when we start thinking and talking about that. So for those of you that are believers, you should have some kind of inclination in your heart that I at least want to not only be aware that God has a will, but I want to in, in some way try to align with that, right? Like I, I want the decisions and, and the purposes of my life to align with what God wants for me as an individual and, and what he wants for um, his family, the church. And so, so I hope that there's something in you that has that, but let me 
let me ask if this scenario is like somewhat familiar. I'll, I'll do it in the form of, of metaphor. But it's like you have something that you want to know what is God's will for me in this particular situation? And so you walk out to the proverbial uh, shed in the backyard and you take the, uh, you take the cover. It's uh, choking you with dust. You take the cover off this generator and um, it, you check it and there's no fuel in it. And you're like, well, I guess I better put a little fuel in this. And so you flip open your Bible and you find like a favorite proverb or a psalm and you read that and you're like, mm, yes, God, that was good. And so you fill that, you fill your, your faith generator with a little bit of fuel so that you can start that thing up. And then you go to God and you say, God, I pray that you would just, you know, show me your will in this situation. And that thing's sputtering and puffing and like, right? And you're like, here it is. And he's going to give me this answer. And then based on whatever is happening or whatever light turns on or something like that, you determine that this is indeed the way that God wants me to choose in this particular situation. Now, I don't want to shame you for that one, but maybe like that's jogging some, some kind of thinking in you, right? Are you familiar with this kind of situation? Yeah, I think so. I think you, you've been there before. And so um, here's the thing. You can search high and low in the scripture. You will not find the idea, our ideas, about finding God's will in Scripture. What you will find is the truth that God has a will, that he has a plan, but it is secret and known to him. And he's carrying out his purposes all along the way, and here we are, and, and we're sort of like stuck with that, that truth, and then we try to make that fit into our worldview that we're the center of. So uh, I'm going to um, show you uh, something from, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a very early on, just a statement of faith. This is from chapter three, and it says this about God's will and God's plan and our plan and our choices and our will. So um, here this morning, it says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Now, I know that's worded in a way that you probably don't talk, so let me just say this. It says that God, from eternity, since he existed from eternity and before there was time and matter and space and all of those things, he had freedom to do whatever he wanted to do, and he chose to do exactly what has happened. And so that is immutable and it's unchangeable. It is God's own decree, and he's carrying these things forward. It's by his own will, and freely he's done these things. And he's ordained whatsoever comes to pass. So if you say, did God intend for this to happen like that? You must answer yes. So that whatever comes to pass is God's will. Now, before you take that to a conclusion it's not meant to go to, uh, I, I want to keep moving here because it addresses some of our uh, inherent objections and, and, and wrong conclusions. It says, yet, so as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is... Um, nor is violence done um, or offered to the will of any of his creatures, nor is liberty uh, or contingency of second causes. That's, sorry, it's cutting off. Let me see if I can do it this way. No, I can't. I'll try a different format in just a second. So let, let me just finish that out. So it essentially says this. Uh, God has chosen to do things on his own will and volition, but he's done this in such a way that whatever comes to pass, he's done it in a way that it doesn't violate our, the, the, the liberty or the dignity of his creatures. So he's put you here. You really do make choices. You have a will of volition, and then things come to pass, and whatever it is that's come to pass is exactly what God has wanted to happen. Now you would say, wait a second, doesn't that make God the author of sin? No, it says he's not the author of sin, but whatever comes to pass, if he's given us a will and volition, that sin is a possibility, okay? Now, 
I don't want to camp on this too long, but uh, so if God's will is always accomplished, then you would ask, then what choice do I have? Or why does it even matter? If God's will is unchangeable and by the own counsel that he has within himself and knowledge and wisdom and all those things, like what, do, what part do I play in this? Or you have this fatalistic view of it where it says, well, I don't have any, I don't have any will at all. I'm just like an automaton and we're just all here playing out this divine drama and God's the only one that, that really does anything. And that's a wrong conclusion too. So we happen to be like human-centered. And so this morning I want to, you to fix your eyes and your thoughts on demystifying God's will, not so that I can say, or you could say, oh, I can explain God. You can't, okay? You can describe the way that things are and live under that knowledge. That's the best you can hope for. So if I could get you to that place this morning, um, this would free you up. It'll free you up from a, a few things. One is this, this idea that you might have where there's a linear path, right? It, at this point and at this moment, I need to turn right and not left. And if I don't, then I will be outside of God's will. The problem with that sort of linear thinking about God's will is that what happens if you did happen to turn left instead of right? And then at what point do you get back on to, to God's will? Or how, do you, how would you know that? And like, how many exponential ways can you be removed from that based on just one wrong decision? So, so this idea where there's like one path through the maze of all of the p- potential options, that's the wrong way to think about God's will. So that's, that's one thing I want you to, to do away with this morning. The other is this. It's this idea that, that we started with where if, when something bad happens, I change my purposes. I change my direction. I change uh, what it is that I'm trying to do based on the idea that God is giving you some sort of feedback about the choices you're making. Now, there are natural consequences to things, and you might have to uh, endure some of those consequences, but something more like, I went to church and my house burnt down. God must be displeased with me. I've made some, some decision in the past, or I didn't uh, seek him, and, and so this is like the result of that, right? And so there, there's a problem there, And then inherent in that worldview, inherent in that idea that something bad happened, so I need to change directions over here. I need to turn right instead of left, right? Is this idea that God means only good and beneficial and happy things for me, right? You have to assume that underneath the idea that if I was in God's will, only good things, the things that I like, the things that I want, and the things that I plan will happen to me. That's That's the underlying assumption to get to that next level where it says, because if something bad happens, then I know I'm outside of God's will, right? And I'm outside of God's will because I didn't turn left when I should have turned right. Do you see how these three things are related? Mm. Okay. Well, if you're, not, if you're lost now, this is going to be a problem. So I want you to see in your own life, when something bad happens, do you think about this or do you take it as feedback? And if that's so, I'm, I'm telling you why that is. Because you think that you should only experience good if you're following God. And that's not true. Whether you follow God or not, you experience good or bad. That's true. Now there's something something important about our experience that Paul's life and how he sees himself in God's will and, and the things that he experiences and how he's carrying forth purposes, but they're God's purposes, but they're also his purposes. They're, and when I say his, I mean Paul's. And so we're going to be doing that by tracking again through the story in uh, Acts 20. So let me pray again for our time. And um, we'll just ask God to help us understand, keep me from error, and um, that he would bless his word this morning. So Father, uh, we come to you and ask that um, we, come, we gather as your body to, um, 
to hear you, not, not, not me. We want to hear from your word. We want to hear truth. We need to hear truth. Father, I know that we carry um, all kinds of emotions from the things that we've experienced this week and, and through life. And we've got some ideas about what your plans are and how we can follow your will. And so I just ask that this morning, through your word, that you would help us to see clearly um, what's true about your word and about your will. Father, help us, keep me from error, prepare our hearts and our minds, and our eyes to see you this morning. Pray that um, I would decrease and it would just be your spirit. Truth speaks this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. So we'll be on uh, Acts chapter 20, and I'll start in verse 7. And this is picking it up as Paul's um, making his way back through to the churches to encourage them. That's our, our purpose. To encourage one another is not just remember to, to say something nice and tell them, boy, it'll be better. Just keep at it. That's not the purpose. It is our, our, literally our being united together in one body for the good of one another and for God's glory. So it says in... Um, Verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to bring to uh, follow a certain travel, I, he was taken up dead. Okay, so j- just pause there for a second. So this kid uh, gathers presumably with his family or his, his parents or somebody brought him to this gathering and Paul is getting long-winded and it's hot in the upper room and so he goes and he sits by the window and he falls out the window and he dies. Okay, so this is something akin to, hey, you went to church last week and your house burnt down right? And we subscribe to something much more like Christian karma than we do to a biblical, God-centered worldview. We think that if something happened uh, bad to me, it's because I'd I, I done something to earn that uh, response. And it was usually something that was unexpected. Well, I was, do, I was reading my Bible, and you did this anyway, God. And, and so we think that there's like this divine um, give and take, and you're not alone in that kind of perspective or that kind of thinking, um, I want to show you a couple places in Scripture so that you can feel like you're in good company. It says, um, there were some present, so get the context here, Jesus is with the disciples, and they're, they're just kind of like on a journey here. And it says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Pilate had gone in, and he had killed um, some of the Jews in uh, the temple and mingled that blood with the sacrifices, which was just uh, blasphemous, if you can think about that. And it says, and he answered, that he there is Jesus. It says, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans, those whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So, so get the idea here. Um, there, there's some people there and they, they know about the Galileans and, and Jesus kind of perceiving the idea that they would be seen as less than or they've done something wrong to earn this. He says, do you suppose that that happened to them because they're sinners or they're worse sinners than everybody else that could have possibly happened to? And he answers, No. Okay, well, and he's going to continue more like, well, what about, so, so that's, um, that's something that was perpetrated on the Jews by Pilate. Then he's going to move to something that's like sort of a, a random event, right? A random occurrence or an act of God, if you want to think about it like that. He says, um, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the, t- the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? 
So he, he goes to this event where um, a, a tower had fallen and it killed some people. So first he talks about, you know, some, some injustices that were perpetrated. And now he's talking about just a random event. And he says, do you think that happened to them because of something bad they did? And he answers again, no, it's not. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, later on, John chapter 9, verse 2. He says, as he passed by, that's he again, Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this, was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it wasn't either. And the reason why he was born blind was so that God would be glorified because Jesus heals this man. Well, you can see in the question there, the idea that this man's being punished because of something that he did or, or his parents did. And um, so there's that sort of... Um, that karma idea. Okay, one more. I'll give it to you. I don't have the scripture up because it's the whole book, the book of Job. Okay, and and Job has every possible bad thing happen to him, and his friends come around him, and his wife comes around him, and they say things like, "Job, surely you've got some sin in your life. You've done something to bring this upon yourself. Have you examined? Like, are you sure that right?" And so the idea here is, Job, um, you're suffering because of something that you've done, and so God's kind of like getting back at you, if you will. So. The question is this, does that really jive with the reality that, that God has a will and that we're supposed to follow it? And, and that he's, he's giving us like feedback on the back end by, by these kind of like grave injustices that we would kind of see from our end? So the question here then that I started with is, well, are you in God's will? And however you answered that probably had something to do with things that are going well in your life or maybe like how much you put in to trying to follow God's will or discern what God's will is. And you're like, well, yeah, I tried hard. So therefore he's going to never lead me astray. I'm like, surely nothing would ever bad happen. So is that really what it's like? It's, that isn't what it's like. Um, you guys uh, may or may not be familiar with the Mission Impossible movies. Okay, but here's how it usually goes down. Whenever Ethan gets a new mission, he, he's given like this exploding message, but it's always like impossibly obscure, impossibly, you know, hard to figure out, um, you know, way, way uh, underdog, like the, the odds are overwhelming kind of thing. And so Ethan then spends the rest of his time trying to, you know, sort all of this, these things out. And that's why it's mission impossible. And I think we, we think about God's will that way too. We think, well, there's this really obscure, if I do enough and I get underneath all of it and I discern the wind at the right time and all of that, then, then I will be able to understand what God's will is. Well, I think if you were to put yourself in the moment of this gathering in Acts where we just gathered because this apostle was coming through and he's sharing the word and maybe you're the parents right now and your son just fell out the window and now he's dead and you're like, if we'd have never come here or if Paul wouldn't have been so stinking long-winded and preached for so long, you wouldn't have fell asleep or if we hadn't had so many, so many torches in here, right? Like you're going through all of the regrettable choices that you made along the way that you know maybe you have, would have made that one tiny little difference and you're like, it, somehow we got outside of God's will, right? Is, is that maybe a familiar scenario or something that you might be thinking? Well, look in verse 11. It says, so, so Paul went down and he bent over him. That's you to kiss the boy. And he takes him in his arms and he said, don't be alarmed. Now, I, um, the, the word there, yeah, don't be alarmed, it sounds, it's stupid if you think about it. He just died. Don't worry about it, guys. It's okay. 
That's not what he says. He says, don't make a big deal about it. He says, don't, don't continue to weep and moan and wail because that's exactly what you and I would be doing in this scenario. And that's exactly what's occurring. But because um, what's happened, he's, he's, he's prayed over him. He's, he's laid down face to face with him. And he says, um, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. His soul is still in him. And when Paul had gone up and he had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so they departed and they took the youth away alive and they were um, not a little comforted. So they were greatly encouraged by the situation. So we tend to look at the negative aspects of things that happen. I did this and then this bad thing happened and therefore, okay, but we tend to miss the parts of it that end up being when God actually... um, gives us that little window where we get to see why something happened that we don't always understand. Now, that doesn't mean that he always turns every tragedy or every, everything that we experience that's hard or difficult into something like this, but he does do it occasionally so that we can trust him in those other times we can't always see it immediately, right? So he turns this amazing tragedy into something where there's life return and they take great encouragement from this. If you um, are missing some of the dots here, you should know that on Paul's way back and to get to this very church, um, they, they were trying to get there by ship and it took them two days longer than they intended. And so Paul's got sort of a, an agenda he's trying to keep here. And so if you think about that, it's actually that wind, that weather, whatever, that kept him from being there a little bit earlier that he decides he's got to leave the next day. So now he's got to preach even longer. And, and so you kind of start connecting some of these dots and you can see that God's going to bring things about because he has orchestrated circumstances for his purposes and not for us to try to read between the lines to help him along the way. So look at the benefit that comes from these kinds of things. Something good coming out of a bad situation that doesn't always make every choice along the way for us okay, but it does help us to, cho- to, to, to trust God in all of those moments. So, he raises this youth to life. This little church now is encouraged. They, they, they take communion together. He preaches even longer all the way through the rest of the night. And then he leaves on the next morning. That's uh, verse 13. It says, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there for so he had arranged. I want you to um, just know a couple of things here. Think about the things that are, are showing you that Paul has plans. Paul has intentions. Paul has ideas. He, he, he's got something he's going to do, right? So, so note, note those kinds of words. One of those is he's intending to do it and that he had arranged for this to be the case, right? So, and then he was intending himself to go by land. So what's happened is he's decided to set his crew on the ship and he's going to travel across land and he's going to meet them at the port when he gets there. He says, and when he met us at Assos, we took him and, uh, on board and we went to Mytilene. Um, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. Okay, so this is just a travel itinerary. Luke's giving us all the places they went. For Paul had decided to sail past. He had decided to sail past Ephesus. This is previous, not in the moment. He decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So now, finally, in uh, verse uh, 16, we get the real, the real meat of why, why did Paul have to leave on the next day? Why, what's, what's the urgency? Why is he doing all these things this way? Well, because Paul's got an agenda to keep, and he's trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Um, he's got some purposes for that because he's carrying gifts 
with him that he's collected from the church, the, the, the church in Jerusalem. There's a famine. Um, times are hard. They want to bring these financial gifts. And, and um, you know, Passover and Pentecost were, were big times that that would happen in the season. So Paul wants to get there at the time where he can bless the, the, the Jews in the Jerusalem church from all the other churches and the, and the Gentile regions and say, look, they care about and love you. And, and this thing started here. And so he, he's kind of be driven by this purpose. And it says, um, uh, sorry, let me pick it up here. So he, he's trying to be at Jerusalem, uh, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Now, this is like going back probably two months now, or at least a month and a half. So I know you've forgotten this. So, so, so something you might have forgotten or missed happened in chapter 19, and it was this. Now, he was in Ephesus before. And there was a riot, and, but he had done ministry in there for, for, for something like three years. And he had a, a vibrant ministry, so, so much so that the church was influencing um, the, the market there, and that caused this riot. So, but before this, it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit. Note that real quick. It says he resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, which is um, what we just read in the previous verses about all those places he had, he had gone in before that. It passed through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, something else that you missed last week is that it's been along this journey that Paul pens um, the letter to 1st and 2nd Corinthians and there's a lost letter in there and then he also writes to the Romans in here and so he's got some destinations in mind, some places where he wants to go and it says that he's resolved in the spirit and we read that and we think something like he um, resolved in the spirit and divined that he needed to go there and that's not what this means. Spirit is not capitalized there in case you missed that. Um, This means something more akin to the reality that Paul has understood that he needs to go to Jerusalem and he's resolved to whatever consequence and to whatever that should bring along the way. He's in his spirit, and he's made this decision not in his flesh, not in his own desires, not in his own plans, not in his own purposes, but in the spirit. And that's what that means. So we're never given any indication that he has a, a secret way to divine God's will that you and I don't have, though we often think that, especially reading a book like Acts where the Spirit is mentioned on, uh, so, so frequently, and then every place that's not mentioned, he's there too. He's always there, orchestrating everything, causing all these circumstances, making things happen, empowering, doing, right? It's the Holy Spirit. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it should be called the Holy Spirit's awesome, okay? And here's what he's done. So he's resolved, in, back in chapter 19, I need to get to Jerusalem. And he's resolved to that consequence because he knows what it's going to bring. It's going to bring some, some devastating things. Paul, uh, Paul is now set on a course to do battle with the hostilities of the day. He's gonna, he finds it by the Jews. He finds it in governments. He finds it in any antichrist spirit. And so we have kind of the Holy Spirit leading Paul, orchestrating circumstances, empowering him where necessary against the antichrist spirit of the day. And he's set on this collision course and he's gonna get to Rome by way of Jerusalem where he'll be arrested in Jerusalem and ultimately taken and in custody for the rest of his life. He knows that's what's waiting for him. He knows that because at every place he's been along the way, that's what's happened. And so we're gonna get a window into what it really means for Paul to say, I know what God's will is for my life. And it's not because God handed him a roadmap and said, hey, at this date, you're gonna be here and you gotta go there. And then you're gonna resurrect this kid here that's not what happened. 
He has resolved in his spirit that whatever God needs me to do, I'm going to go and I'm going to be and I'll, be, I'll just turn my life over to him. So, you're maybe familiar with this passage. It says, seek first God's plan and all of his good things. And once you know them, then he'll give them to you, right? Is that the passage? Is that the scripture? I, I think you guys know that, right? Seek first what? The kingdom. Seek first God himself. Seek first God's purposes. And then all of the things that you think that you need to plan for those things would be added onto you. We do it the other way around. We'll seek the plan, and then when I'm sure that God's going to, he's, he's going to give me some things that I want along the way, then I will submit to the plan. Like, uh, hey, I've got a few revisions here. I'm not so much a fan of prison. Like, let's cut a couple of those out. Ah, uh, beatings, not so much, right? That's not seeking first the kingdom. It's, um, or that, that, <laughs> To, to, res, to try to, you know, have that dialogue with God is not seeking first the kingdom. So, so here's what we're called to. Not to try to discern God's secret counsel and God's will, but to know that God has a will and to live in faith of that will and of that plan. So we're always called to live by faith. So let's move on. Verse 17, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come him. So he's decided he's not going to stop in Ephesus because he knows if he does, he's going to have to delay there longer than he wants to. He's, remember, he's trying to make haste to get to Jerusalem. And so he says, instead of just spending time there, I'm going to tell the Ephesian elders of the church there in Ephesus, meet me at the next port. And so that's exactly what happens. And when they came to him, he said to them, now you yourselves know how I lived among you, how uh, for, uh, the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And now, look, Paul's saying by, by his own mouth and by his own word, look, I, I just went and you've seen the things that I've endured. Paul didn't go to Ephesus because he was promised only good things. He went to Ephesus because it was, they needed the gospel. And he says, I lived among you. I just lived life trying to show you the kingdom. And I didn't withhold anything from you. I, I, I had trials and tears and, and things came against me. So, he says, I did not shrink from declaring you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. He said, we gathered in churches, we did that, and we gathered in the hall of Tyrannus, and we did that, and we did a house to house too. It wasn't just relegated to this one time where you think, if I go to church, that's, I've done my duty, God. So just show me your plan and give me your good stuff, and, and then we'll keep moving. He says, no, it's, it's all of life. So he says, I was testifying to Jews and to Greeks. I didn't withhold from, from one group or another uh, toward God and a faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, okay? So, so now he's picking up this truth that he knows. I've got to get to Jerusalem. One, because I'm going to deliver some gifts. I'm resolved to whatever's going to happen there. And he says, I'm constrained by the Spirit. Now that Spirit is capitalized. And that constraint means literally I'm in chains. I'm in chains. I'm bound to the Spirit to do this. Why? Because he committed to now you say, did Paul give some extra commitment that you or I didn't get? And that's why he's constrained and I'm not. And the answer is no. You have surrendered your life to God. And you are bound and constrained to whatever the Holy Spirit gives you and leads. So he says this, I'm constrained by whatever should happen to me. And I know that some of the things that are going to happen to me are not good. 
I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. He says, not knowing what will happen there. That's interesting. So, so just note that for a second. Not knowing what will happen there. There's obstacles and trials and difficulties in Paul's way. They're, they're in our way. But those trials are ultimately end up being testimonies to, to God's goodness and how God has come through in, in various situations. And so every circumstance of the Lord is, or every circumstance is of the Lord, but some of the things that happen to us are by the schemes of Satan, okay? Now you, you would say, hey, uh, I didn't come to church last week because my alarm didn't go off. And that was just, you know, the Lord was just working. And uh, so it's, you know, so we, we get into this, uh, que sera, sera, you know what that means? What will be, what will be? So it means this. It means like, I don't have to, I don't invest anything into this life. God's going to have his own way. God's going to have his own will. I really don't have to do anything. So anything that happens to me is exactly what God um, wants to happen. And that's a true enough statement, except for the fact that nobody really lives that way. You can think that that's true, and sometimes that's pejoratively said to people that ascribe to God's sovereignty in a good biblical way. But the truth is this. If you really thought that that was the case, you wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't feed yourself. You wouldn't put clothes on. I mean, like the basic kinds of decisions that you make show that you know that you must engage some way in this life, right? So it can't possibly be that whatever God wants to happen will happen. Yes, it will happen, but it happens through the volition of his creatures, good and bad. And so we see both good and bad. Some things that we do are exactly what God wants us to do. And sometimes we rebel against what God wants us to do. And those bring about what God knew was going to happen anyway. And so we see that frequently referred to all throughout scripture, especially in Acts, where they're pointing to the reality that the greatest injustice, the, gra- the gravest injustice that's ever been perpetrated was planned by God. That is the crucifixion and death of his son. If, if God couldn't guarantee that, then we couldn't be saved. But it had to happen through the rebellion of his people and people reviling Christ, God in the flesh, right? You see that there's volition there. There's, there's, there's engagement with it, but it's bringing about God's plan and purposes. So every circumstance is of the Lord, but not everything that happens is what the Lord wants for us. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a secondary, if you want to say it this way, a will of God where he gives us what he wants us to do and we don't always obey it. And some things come about because of the circumstances of Satan orchestrating and people doing what he wants them to do. But that's not outside of God's control. Let me give you a couple examples. In 1 Thessalonians, um, will it do it? There, oh. In 1 Thessalonians, I promise it's there. Well, I'll read it to you. It's not going to cooperate. Listen, this is Paul speaking. And he says, Brother, brothers, although we were, we were torn away from you, they were taken away from Thessalonians uh, for a short while uh, in person, not in heart. So they, they were taken away and, and they didn't have communion like Paul wanted. Our desire to see you face to face was even more intense, he says. For we wanted to come to you. Indeed, I, Paul, tried again and again. And then he says this, but Satan obstructed us. So, so Paul's got some desires, he's got some plans, he wanted to come to the Thessalonians, and he says, look, I wanted to come, but the stuff that happened to me, 
that, that I know wasn't from God. It was Satan. It was putting things in our way. And so I wasn't able to have the communion with you that I wanted to do. He says the same thing in, in Romans and uh, chapter 1, verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, how often I, I plan to come to you. But I've been prevented from visiting you until now in order that I might have a harvest among you. He's prevented from visiting them because he's arrested. That's why he can't come to them. Okay? So that's also by the design and the rebellion of, of people against God's will. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's talking about um, just the experience of his life and all the trials that he goes through and, and the difficulties that he's had. And he says this, that a thorn was given to him in the flesh, which is a messenger of Satan. And it was given to me to harass me so that I would not become conceited about the great revelations that I've had. Okay? So, um, I don't have time for it, but there's an interesting story behind that. But look, what, what Paul knows is he's connected some of the dots that you or I miss sometimes. And it's not just every single thing that happens, regardless of if it's good or bad, is from God. Every circumstance is from God, but not everything that happens is what God desires for us. And so we, we need to be careful about just saying, well, Jesus, take the wheel, okay? Because sometimes, you know, you're, you're just allowing other people to take the wheel for you, and they're not serving Jesus, okay? So here, here's the deal. There is a plan, and we're, we, we resign ourselves to the best of our ability to, to, um, to walk in God's commandments to us. And, and God's will for us is that we would walk in a way of faith. So here's what um, Paul's going to go on to say. Let me get there. He says this, I don't know what's going to happen. So he doesn't have this roadmap, okay? He doesn't get this, this thing that says, hey, here, there, and, and here's the time and all of that, right? He doesn't have that. He says, I don't know, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, you don't have to have been through very many of the sermons of Acts and to see Paul's different places that he spent to, uh, to answer this question. How has the Holy Spirit testified to Paul in every city that he's been in that this is what awaits him? Because that's exactly what happens every place he goes. He is gleaned from the circumstances that if I serve God and if I carry the gospel, that this is what happens. People will hate me. It'll win some people. I'll be able to invest good for the kingdom, but then I'm also going to get hated and people are going to be mean to me. And I'm going to suffer some trials and tribulations. And the Holy Spirit has shown me that all along the way. And that's why he's able to know if I go to Jerusalem in the heart of where the church is birthed out of, but also in the heart of Judaism where, um, you know, the Jews are going to hate this off um, shoot sect that's following the way of Christ. He knows that this is going to cause further issues for him. But he doesn't know in the roadmap sort of way. He knows in the experiential sort of way. So he says, Holy Spirit testifies to me of this, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, look, if I had a plan, it wouldn't be worth telling you guys about. Because my, my, my life and whatever I could make out of it is nothing compared to the ministry that Christ can do through my living. I, I'm, I'm here only for the purpose of carrying the gospel ministry forward. And I just want to be able to say that I did that in, in truth and with integrity. So now behold, I know that uh, none of you among whom I have uh, gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He knows this is the last time he's ever going to see this, uh, this Ephesian church, these Ephesian elders. And so 
He's going to, uh, to give them a word of encouragement, and we'll get to that next week. But he says some important phrases in here. He's got intentions. He knows he's going to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there. There's some known quantities, but he says, look, my purpose is to go on living for as long as God gives me with one thing in mind, to carry the gospel. I will go on living. So here's what I think we think sometimes. Like, there's certain points in our living where we make some, some great decision or we think that some big decision is actually the thing that God wants us to pay attention. Like all the other things that we're, we don't really count those as, as God problems, things that we're, we're deciding along the way. We, we don't bother to address any, anything in faith. We don't run that through that filter, right? But then this big thing comes up and we go, well, if I, once I sell that, then, then that's something that God really wants me to figure out. And so we promise ourselves that if we do those in the big things, those, those big kind of weighty things, that God's okay to have um, us take care of everything else. Where we say, I got the rest of my life, God, if you'll just solve these big issues for me so that I know that I'm not doing, you know, totally the wrong thing, right? And we sort of take over the rest of our life and pilot that way. I would submit to you that's what I think that we do. And even more in that sort of same vein is this idea. You know, I, the truth is, if it really came down to it, I would be a martyr for God. I would give my life. If, if the government said, you can't be a Christian, gun to my head, I'm doing it, right? And so we use this idea of some great commitment somewhere down the road that may or may not happen as the reason why I don't have to live in obedience today. We are so ready to give our death to God when the reality is it's much harder to give our life to God, our living to God. You're every day, in and out, from church to church and house to house, my job, friends, all of the, all of the aspects that you think that you get to control where, where God only cares about what church you go to and what college you choose and what you know, job you have. Well, I won't, I'll consult him on those things. And so far as I feel like those align with mostly where I was going anyway, I'll probably maybe kind of submit to those occasionally. And so we wind up committing this death to God. Like, I'll give you my death, God, if you ask that. But he hasn't asked that. He hasn't asked that of you. He will have your faithful death because it's already been reckoned to him. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. See, the reason why you get to live any kind of life that says, I, I, it's not me, but, but Christ, it's, it's, it's him who's lived. Because you've already reckoned yourself dead. That is what spiritual birth is. To say, you know what, my death happened in Jesus when he died on the cross. That's the death that must already be reckoned. And now you don't have any life that you get to choose anymore. When Paul says, I am a servant we think, oh yeah, he, he gets paid. He's an employee. He says, I'm a slave. And do you know the difference between a slave and a servant? A slave doesn't get paid and he does it all for the will of the master, for the good of the master. And this is how we should look at our lives. This is how we should live our lives. Not just in the big pieces and not way at the end. So we come on delay today's obedience because we think tomorrow we might have that great opportunity to really show that we love God. And he's, he's not asked you for that death. He might, and he has purposes for martyrs. 
But will you live for him? Will you give your living to him? Will you surrender your living to him? The first sermon I ever like preached to a, a church, I felt really good about. But uh, I found out after um, a couple of days, our pastor was in um, Africa. And so he was like, all right, you're on, man. <laughs> okay. So I got to preach and I, I gave it my all. And, uh, and he came and he said, hey, man, uh, you, you did good. And, um, you know, your application was uh, kind of rough. And I said, you know, like, what do you mean? And he said, well, some people complained afterward. <laughs> and uh, I, so I was like, what do you, like, why? And he said, you know, they came and they said, you know, it's easy for Mitch to say, you got to live your life for God, all of your life for God, because he's a pastor and he gets paid to do that. But I, I have a job, I got, you know, so, so the, the, the reality was like, I, I was asking for nothing more than what God has said, he will give you life when you reckon him your death, right? And, and this person said, well, I, I still want to hang on to my life. And so it was really about me preaching this, this truth that even though we fail along the way to, to, to do everything right all the time, God has not asked you to do that. If you look at the picture of God calling people to himself, he, he doesn't do it by way of giving them the roadmap and then saying, however well you follow this shows me how, how much you love me. When he called Abram before he was Abraham, he said, leave, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave everything you know and follow me. Abraham said, where are we going? He said, I'll show you when we get there. He didn't have a roadmap. He said, trust me, live a life of faith. That's what you've been asked to do, to trust God in whatever he gives you, wherever he leads and wherever he plants you. And so the, the, the simple question, the way that you can ask this of yourself to say like, am I in God's will? To say, am, are you living in faith? Or are you living in the flesh? Are you holding on to the circumstances, living by the way that you see things? If I plan my course just so, then I, am, I can assure myself the right things and the things that I want and so on and so forth, right? But that's not what God's called you to. He's called you to walk by not by, that's the, the distinction there is in the spirit or in the flesh. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you living by the way that you see things and what you want or are you living trusting God for whatever he brings, good and bad? So can the great purposes of your life, even when they're thwarted and, and they break down and stuff's going wrong, and you, you don't need to take that as, I, I've blown it somewhere. Now maybe you have blown it somewhere. But your opportunity to get back on that path is to trust God to make something of that mess. God draws in, in straight lines with, with crooked people. Okay? And his Holy Spirit does that. It's not us. So we trust him in doing that. So the simplistic test is this. Will the main focus and goal of your life, is it, will it function? Can it happen regardless of who you're with, where you're at? in what you have. All of those things are transient. Who you're with, where you're at, and what you have. If your happiness, your purposes, the things that you're pursuing, if they're contingent upon any one of those things, then you're probably living more in the flesh than you are called to be. So, are you living in God's will? That's the question. And if you're not, then it probably comes to some important point of surrender this morning.
It's not just, well, I see that I've, I've really kept this hand behind my back. It's you, you surrender everything. Reckon your death to have already happened and every life, every part of your life is God's to control. As we move to um, communion this morning,